0: Harvard Divinity School, psychedelics and the future of religion, mescaline and psychonauts, November twenty seventh, two thousand twenty three.
1: My name is Jeffrey Bro, and I'm a graduate student at Harvard Divinity School and a researcher with the Center for the Study of World Religions, where, along with Paul, I convene the psychedelics, sacred and subversive reading group. Today's event is part of a very popular series on psychedelics and the future of religion, which is now in its third year. This series is part of the center's larger, ongoing, and evolving initiative called Transcendence and Transformation, or TNT for short. If you're interested in TNT, we'll put a link to the TNT page in the chat function. As always, the best way to stay abreast of what we're doing at the center and its programming is to sign up for our weekly newsletter which you can do at the center's landing page. As has been the case with all of the psychedelics and the future of religion talks this year, our psychedelics, sacred and subversive reading group engaged with Mike Jay's writing in advance of today's conversation. The richness of Mike's work led to an energized and sweeping conversation among the 25 graduate students and faculty who are part of the group. It was a conversation that broached questions ranging from the conceptual, What is a drug? How did that label come about? What are the ramifications of how psychedelic history is told? And it also covered the more concrete, questions like what are the ideal approaches to decriminalization and legalization? And what moral imperatives do religious practitioners and scholars have to aid in undoing the harms wrought by the war on drugs? We expect that today's conversation with Mike J will cover just as wide a range of topics and be just as exciting and generative. In a minute, I will turn it over to Paul, who will introduce our speaker and kick off today's conversation. We are fortunate to have the full 90 minutes to be in dialogue with Mike J today, and Paul and I will be moderating with a mix of our own questions, those that arose during the reading group, and the questions from all of you in the audience. With that, I will turn it over to Paul to introduce himself and Mike J.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome again. I'm Paul Gillis Smith, grad student at Harvard Divinity School and researcher here at the Center for the Study of World Religions. It's been an absolute delight working with my comrade Jeffrey here on all things psychedelia at the Center and beyond. Our conversation a few weeks ago on Mike's book and our reading group has been front of mind as we thought through today's event. And I hope that any of our reading group journeyers in the audience here, and I see a few of you, uh, who had a burning and unanswered question from our discussion a couple of weeks ago, might pose it in our virtual forum today. Without further ado, let me introduce our interlocutor, Mr. Mike J. Mike J. is a museum curator and longtime freelance writer, getting his start by writing on drugs and how drug knowledge of all kinds was shared on the early Internet forums of the 90s, well before my own time on the Internet. Um, and it was during a time when academic writing on drugs was largely limited to studies of addiction and drug abuse control. Jay has since written and edited over a dozen books, including This Way Madness Lies, which is a history of madness through the prism of the asylum, Uh, Blue Tide, The Search for Soma, Uh, Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic, and most recently, Psychonauts, Drugs, and the Making of the Modern Mind. Our discussion today will focus focus on Jay's two most recent books, Mescaline and Psychonauts, which I have here today, both published uh, by Yale University's Press. Jay's newest volume, Psychonauts, puts the phenomenon of self-experimentation as a first mover in the role that drugs have played in the history of consciousness research over the last 200 or so years. Particular relevance to our series today through the cultural history that Psychonauts lays out, Mike Jay offers a broader taxonomic category than the term psychedelics often permits when we think of the plants, chemicals, and admixtures that provide transcendencies towards our own transformation. Jay's history brings cocaine, nitrous oxide, amphetamines, anesthetics, and a multitude of forms of cannabis into the frame for how uh, many have sought transformation and in which laboratories one might find an un expected transcendence. So, Mr. J, uh, the floor is yours for any introductory remarks, remarks that you might have for us.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Paul, and thank you, Jeff. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I thought I'd start just with a brief introduction of how I got to this point, because it's a strange and circuitous route. I am, as Paul said, a uh, a freelance writer, um, but I have, uh, I, I have benefited from uh, academic um, scholarship and uh, fellowship throughout uh, my career. I started writing about uh, drugs in the 1990s, originally as a journalist, and then I got interested in the questions of uh, where drugs came from and the history of drugs. And it was uh, it was very hard to find anything kind of, before the 1960s, uh, so that led me First of all, to the uh, Welcome Institute for the History of Medicine here in London, uh, and its uh, fantastic library and archive, and then through that to its academic unit at the time that was teaching and researching there, and uh, affiliated with University College London. Uh, that was the unit was r- led by the incredibly prolific and brilliant Roy Porter. Uh, with um, uh, other figures like uh, William Bynum and Michael Neve, who I worked closely with. They'd been historians at Cambridge in the 1970s, and their mentors had been from the post-war school of history from below. And that's really what they brought to the welcome when they came there. Uh, It was quite transformational for the history of medicine, I think, which at that point was... um, a little bit of an academic backwater. A lot of the work that was being produced was, uh, um, you know, uh, retired uh, medical professionals writing their career memoirs, um, even though actually from its very foundation, from uh, Henry Welcome back at the beginning of the 20th century, his uh, um, he had been Uh, His maxim had always been, don't trust the doctors to tell you their own story. You need to study them like you'd study kind of any other group in society or any other tribe or whatever. Uh, And this was what uh, Roy and Michael and the Welcome academic Unit did. Uh, They paid a lot of attention to the role of um, medicine in the wider society, the way that the medical profession was seen, the changing social status of medical professionals, for example, And particularly uh, the doctor patient relationship. And they looked very closely at uh, patient testimonies, which uh, had tended to be ignored up to that point. So that was really where I took off with on the history of drugs. I discovered um, in the Wellcome archives and library and elsewhere just this absolute treasure trove of um, subjective reports of drug experiences, often by doctors and scientists, um, first-person accounts and reportage, and discovered that very, very little of this had been looked at um, by academics, and that, you know, the ones which had had been often kind of glossed over. Uh, The history of drugs at that point was quite small and specialised, and it was very much a top-down history. It was about drug control regimes and drug policy and um, addiction studies and there'd been very little attention paid to the phenomenology of the drug experience or the cultural context in which um, drug experiences occurred, so I started to write about that. And I also um, started to draw on psychiatric patient testimony to write about uh, the history of uh, madness and psychiatry from that sort of bottom up perspective as well. And then I guess in about 2007, the Welcomes um, collection and exhibitions arm approached me. Uh, to curate a big exhibition about uh, mind-altering drugs in history and culture called High Society, which I did, and I wrote the book that went um, along with that. So I guess from about that point on, I was um, sort of recognised as a specialist in the history of drugs and particularly in this sort of uh, th- this approach to it. Um, I had already, around this time, written a book for Yale University Press, uh, called the Atmosphere of Heaven, uh, which is about the discovery of nitrous oxide by uh, Humphrey Davy and uh, Thomas Beddoes and their uh, circle in the 1790s, and that's really, I think, the very beginning of what we would now call psychedelic science. So then, as uh, we went through the uh, the 2010s, I guess, and the psychedelic renaissance started to build. Uh, then Yale, uh, started to talk to me about, maybe we should do a book about the history of psychedelics and, uh, I, I really wanted to do that. And I thought that a history of mescaline would be a great way of doing it. And uh, some episodes of which I had written about uh, previously and studied, but others were fairly uh, unstudied and unlike, you know, LSD or MDMA or whatever, which are lots of kind of drug biographies. Nobody had done one for mescaline before. So uh, that was what I wrote. I guess I published it about five years ago and um, After that, I started to talk to Yale about a follow-up to that, and uh, I thought what I'd like to do was, um, uh, Mescaline has a huge sort of panoramic uh, uh, time span, you know, going from uh, pre-Hispanic America, right, you know, through to the 21st century. I thought what I'd like to do um, in the follow-up was to pick one particular uh, time and place, one sort of era, and that was really the late uh, 19th century and sort of Western medicine and science, because it seemed to me that so many um, strands of the story go through that uh, moment. And of course, it's the, it's the moment of, uh, you know, the birth of uh, psychology, the discovery of the unconscious, you know, our ideas about the modern mind coming into incredibly fruitful contact with this much longer established, uh, um, practice of self-experiment in science, particularly self-experiment with, uh, mind-altering drugs. So that was Psychonauts.
1: Phenomenal. I, uh, that's, it's, in hearing all of your work sort of together, it's amazing how almost, um, perfectly positioned you were for the, to be writing and thinking about the psychedelic renaissance and, and taking an approach to psychedelics that doesn't just limit what we think of as the category of drug, but rather as sort of an, an expansive category, I'm as sort of maybe a, a first question into the the work, um, specifically the work on mescaline. And one of the tensions that seems to be present in in a lot of your work is what are the frames by which we should be thinking of these substances? Who gets to tell the history and whose story sort of reigns supreme in in Mexico, and we really see this starkly between um, sort of indigenous understandings of these plants and these substances versus scientific frames. And I'm curious if you could elaborate um, on sort of as you were doing the research, how you were constructing sort of these competing narratives and viewing them in your in your research and ultimately your writing. Yeah, that's a great question.
2: And that's one of the things that really drew me to uh, mescaline as a subject, is that it's a substance with two histories, really, a Western one and a non-Western or Indigenous one. And um, I was more familiar when I started with the Western history, which is... uh, um, Incredibly rich in the sort of um, personal experiences and self-experimental accounts that I was talking about, and I'd used mescaline in previous works as as, as an example of how this emerged. So we've got all these figures from uh, um, Weir Mitchell and uh, Havelock Ellis in the eighteen nineties, through to um, Aldous Huxley and Robert Graves, and you know, through to Alexander Shulgin and so on, and. Um, from the very beginning of this uh, uh, Western history, there's a kind of protocol that's established that we all recognize. 10.30 a.m. Uh, at, you know, three buttons of peyote dissolved in water. 11.15 a.m. started to notice slight violet and green hues around the you know white notepad that I'm writing on. And... Uh, so this is all it's kind of a very forensic approach and it's about separating out as cleanly as possible the effects of the drug from normal consciousness. And um it's very much focused on the visuals and um it's uh because these are uh, partly because they're so striking, but also partly because they're they're used as a sort of shorthand for identifying a level of intoxication. So, you know, we still, when we have the word psychedelic and, you know, in general parlance, it refers to, you know, these uh, very um, vivid visual styles. And when people are trying to talk about their psychedelic experiences, they kind of gauge the intensity of them by how intense the visual distortions were. And um, it was fascinating turning then to non-western and indigenous traditions uh and where one looks in vain for anything like this you know there are very few first person accounts and um, in of 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 um the peyote or uh, the San Pedro, the wachuma, the masculine containing cacti in the indigenous literature, and the ones that there are are usually have been prompted by a Western anthropologist. And um, I discovered as I went on that it was not um, simply that these weren't available; it was that this is really not how um, these um, uh, plants were experienced, uh, whereas the Western experience is very much about the I. The indigenous one was much more about the we. You know, these are communal experiences. And um, in fact, the obsession with sort of um, visuals that we have in the West is not really there in indigenous culture. And there's quite a sort of, you know, a presumption against um, talking about the visions that you might see. partly because they're private and they are given to you directly and they're for you and why would you share them what would be your motive for doing that uh um but also uh as uh both in which all for example traditions and in the native american church tradition um there's a kind of cautionary note that if you're getting hooked up on the visuals then you're being distracted you're missing the point um you know they're a bit of a snare and a bit of a temptation and really you should be if you find that happening to you then you should pop out of that and you should become present again in the group ceremony which is uh what's really going on so um it's very i mean in mescaline i sort of uh suggest that if you look at the transition from um, orality to literacy, you know, that maybe kind of gives us some idea of the shift between the sort of non-Western and the Western experience. But really, as I went on, I kind of realized that the Indigenous, the non-Western history is very much um, it's the history of a culture and it's the history of a people, whereas uh, the um, Western history is um, essentially the history of a kind of concatenation of individuals.
0: Thank you so much, Mike. Um, I am curious about, so you you remarked that the journey in, into writing this book was the request for writing a, a psychedelic history, um, and that the choice of Mescaline I found was an interesting one to, to argue as the first psychedelic, because uh, as the there are so many other psychoactive plants and compounds that have since been discovered uh, as per, perhaps potentially predating the use of, of mescaline or peyote. But the yeah. argument for mescaline is the first psychedelic does still seem to stand as its extraction and synthesis uh, sparked the coining of this specific term for this loose cluster of drugs. Um, yeah. And so I'm curious, what it is about Mescaline then that you see as continuing to operate as a ground zero for the etymology of psychedelic, or put differently, how does Mescaline's legacy as the first psychedelic endure, even with the sort of uh, popularity of other psychedelics kind of running the the show now?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the first psychedelic is a big sounding claim of the kind that publishers like. the question of like, what was the first psychedelic to be used in deep prehistory seems to me a kind of moot and slightly incoherent question. I mean, first of all, how can we know? And secondly, you know, are we limiting that question to things that we today categorise as psychedelic? I mean, what if it turns out to be alcohol, as it very likely was? Would we disqualify that? So I just mean the psych- the first psychedelic and a more narrow but uh, more specific sense that when the term psychedelic was coined by um, Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond in 1956, it was coined as a sort of sequel to uh, Aldous Huxley's mescaline experience. And at the time when they coined the term, uh, they were really talking about, I mean, psilocybin hadn't quite yet been isolated. It was really about mescaline and LSD and of those two, LSD was the recent one. That was the one that was not found in nature, that had been you know, uh, synthesized in a laboratory quite recently. Uh, mescaline, by contrast, was the one that had a history that went way, way back. I mean, way back in Western science to the 19th century and then way back millennia beyond that in um, indigenous uh, cultures. So I think uh, in that sense, it's the first psychedelic and it always will be. But the paradox of it, which uh, intrigued me, was that even at that moment in 1956, uh, when the term psychedelic was coined, uh, mescaline was being overtaken by LSD. Uh, it was already starting to be preferred for uh, uh, scientific research um, because it was so so much more concentrated. You know, thousands of times, you know, sort of uh, more active than mescaline. So that not only meant that it was cheaper, but also that it was more likely to be kind of working some on some specific key in the in 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 the brain on some particular neurochemical key, whereas. As mescaline had been conceived for, de- for decades by that point as a kind of neurotoxin that sort of generally washed over the brain. So you can see why. LSD um, took over for both uh, logistic and theoretical reasons in science. And then in the 1960s, when the psychedelic counterculture started, it was LSD rather than mescaline that took over for precisely the same reason. When the first underground chemists started producing something, I mean, why produce a gram of mescaline, which makes like three doses when you could produce a gram of LSD that makes thousands of doses. So mescaline was kind of already on the way out at that point. So it was an interesting um, subject to pick because... um All its history sort of really went back, you know, but before that moment when the concept of psychedelic originated rather than forwards. And it had more or less disappeared, you know, by the end of the 60s and uh, had become at least kind of a legendary substance, uh, you know, that was still, um, you know, it could never be forgotten because everybody always remembered. um, Everybody had a dog-eared copy of uh, Doors of Perception on their shelves. Everybody would always remember where that story started. And as we go forward into the 21st century, um, actually, you know, mescaline has... Uh, you know, never really kind of got going in the psychedelic renaissance for exactly the same logistical reasons. It's a 12 hour trip. You know, it's a very large dose. It's got lots of somatic effects. If you're trying to find something that's, you know, short acting and containable and manageable, then it's never going to be your your first choice. Um, but what of course has happened in the 21st century is that the cacti uh, in two very different ways, the peyote cactus and the huachuma, the San Pedro, are probably now being used by, in both cases, by more people on the planet than they ever have been in history. So one can't, in that sense, say that mescaline has disappeared, and I think the cacti may well have uh, you know, important roles in the future of psychedelics, but uh, I think really the legacy of mescaline is that it's the
1: origin story, and it always will be. Yeah, I love I, I love thinking about this these sort of long histories, and even in in your response there, the idea of w- what exactly is a psychedelic was sort of coming to mind because it, it's a as a term it's somewhat slippery. Um, we use it to mean so many different things, and 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 it means different things to different people. And there's sort of I think. Maybe we'll turn to this after after we spend a little bit more time with mescaline, but this is such a key question in psychonauts. It's like, what is a drug yeah. and who gets to decide? Maybe um, before we we turn there, one sort of question that was coming to mind as you were talking about the history of, of mescaline and mescaline use now and sort of more mm-hmm. p- the, the cacti than ever before. I'm curious if you, what your thoughts are about the way that that there being so many extant indigenous traditions that are using, or sort of new, newer, newish traditions like the Native American church that sort of have done such a good job at um, solidifying the indigenous history of mescaline. I'm curious how you, if you think that that is changing the way that um, science is viewing this this substance. Um, And I'm thinking specifically here about maybe like Michael Pollan's work on, um, this is your mind on plants saying we shouldn't, touch peyote at all as a scientific community. Have you seen that discourse in the sort of what we would call like the Western psychedelic renaissance?
2: Definitely, I mean, we've got a huge rights clash, I think, between groups like uh, decriminalized psychedelics on the one hand and the Native American church on the other. And um, I think these are two very different understandings and it'd be good to talk about the term drugs and the term psychedelics later but um i think in this context um it's uh um you don't find a lot of indigenous people using the word psychedelic and i think that's partly because you know baked into it in ways that we don't always appreciate is a, a narrative that um These plants contain chemicals that are psychoactive and these chemicals in these plants affect the neurochemistry of our brains, which alter our states of consciousness of, you know, needless to say, none of this uh, narrative has any relevance in indigenous contexts, so. um, You know the word psychedelic. I I think it's it's interesting when you when you move into this context and the word psychedelic doesn't really work. And then you have to kind of think about well, how would we paraphrase it? What do we mean if we don't have this uh, handy term? You know. And then the other thing I've picked up in indigenous cultures is that. um, They don't like to refer to their practices as psychedelic because, in in a way, they see the term psychedelic as kind of co-opting them without their consent into a Western cultural movement with which they may not actually have very many affinities. So, um, yeah, I think it's a problematic term. I think it works very well for um, in a Western context, in context of Western modernity, you know, after the point where the term was coined, it doesn't work so well in other contexts um as to whether that um affects the science or not i have worked with you know a couple of startups who are interested in uh using mescaline in therapy and drawing on uh native american church practices particularly for treatment of alcoholism which was something that the native american church kind of came to specialize in during the during the 20th century uh and i think more so than um uh mdma or lsd or any of these um unambiguous um uh creations of the laboratory i think um people in psychedelic science are aware that mescaline has a legacy and a legacy that needs to be acknowledged uh you know possibly you know th- i think this is true of mushrooms as well but uh you know indigenous mushroom cultures are you know they are sort of fewer and more isolated and i think um What we have with the mescaline cacti is, you know, the extraordinary phenomenon of the Native American church, which is, you know, essentially in terms of its use of peyote, a a new religious movement from the late 19th century. Uh, And then much more recently um, in um, the Andes and on the Pacific coast of South America, uh, the use of uh, Huachuma or San Pedro, which was um, very sort of, marginalized, um, not very much studied even by anthropologists because it was always regarded as being a kind of a kind of Mestizo culture that wasn't sort of, uh, you know, authentic or pristine or ancient. So there's very, very little literature on it, uh, you know, through into the 1960s and even into the 21st century. And now it's become this phenomenon with kind of um, notional uh, South American roots and, um, you know, Lineages of practice kind of often once or twice or three times removed, but something that you're as likely to encounter in um, Goa or Ibiza or Thailand or California as uh, as you are in um, Peru or Colombia. So I think uh, that's become a genuinely global phenomenon. And it's very interesting to see. how or whether scientific, uh, you know, psychedelic science will engage with that because um, so far that engagement has happened outside the medico scientific um, gaze.
0: I am, I, I, to situate ourselves in the, the title of the series, Psychedelics in the Future of Religion, I think mm-hmm. we could just as easily title this uh this uh panel this event today psychedelics in the history of of medicine or psychedelics in the history of <laughs> psychopharmacology rather than the the future of religion um mm-hmm. and i think psychedelics sort of point to a really interesting like juncture point or friction between science and religion that we're sort of always kind of mm-hmm. stumbling our way into you know whether it's a you know, a dark history of darwin or something like that we kind of have the same sort of tension or um um, fr- I think friction is the best word of uh, how science and religion are coming together around these mm-hmm. around these substances and, and taking them for taking them for various for various uses. Um, and I'm curious what you make then of what the the future for this relationship between scientific and religious use of these chemicals plays. Because um, at least in the history we have. Mescaline gives a great study of like a long indigenous history that we could describe as religious. Perhaps that's not even the best term. I find a lot of times our categories of religious, medical, recreational aren't particularly relevant in indigenous contexts. You know, it's, it's both and or it's neither nor. But now as we sort of set off into the future, the Native American church setting itself up as a kind of religious entity and many other uh, religious communities sort of organizing themselves around psychedelics and their the legalization of their use structured through a, a sort of religious rights prism, and then a parallel path of, you know, we need to legalize and pharmaceuticalize. What do you make of the future that this uh, longstanding relationship between science and religion um, has been on, on psychedelics?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. There's a, a, a lot... Of of that that um I agree with entirely. I think uh medicine and religion uh in that sense are Western categories much more than they are non-Western or Indigenous categories. I think uh, as you say, they're kind of really the same thing in Indigenous cultures, and I think this confused both um anthropologists and doctors. Uh, looking at indigenous practices of this kind, which seemed from a Western perspective to be a mixture of sort of proper medical science and superstition. So people would go, well, this bit is about physical healing. So that's obviously medicine. But then there's this other bit that's about clairvoyance. And that's kind of superstition. Um, You know, in indigenous terms, they're the same thing. If we think of these plants as something that enable you to see things that are normally not visible or to communicate with non-human persons you can't normally communicate with, then the information that you get might be that this is the cause of your sickness or it might be that uh, this is where your lost object is located. You know, it's really the same thing. So in that sense, there's no distinction. I was very struck um, looking at the sort of one of the few points where... um, uh, Western and non-Western cultures engaged very directly around this, which was in the 1890s when the um, uh, in the early days of the um, peyote religion, the, the Plains Native American religion, uh, and the first encounters with Western science, um, particularly um, James Mooney, who was an uh, ethnographer from the Smithsonian, who was the first white person to participate in a peyote ceremony, and um, the uh, chief of the Comanches, Kwana Parker, who he uh, got uh, this big sack of peyote buttons from in 1893 in Oklahoma, which then kind of ended up being taken by William James and sort of the first, you know, you've been used in the first uh, scientific trials in Washington, you know, so you've got a real interface there. And as they, um, so... James Mooney and Quanah Parker were the sort of two great advocates for peyote religion at that point, you know, one white and one indigenous, but talking to similar groups of people, missionaries, federal bureaucrats, the House of Representatives, and so on, and both of them presented peyote to these audiences in exactly the same way I don't think they conferred on this at all uh, both said first of all this is a medicine it's a very important medicine it's a very valuable medicine uh, it should be researched by you know Western medical science it should be part of the western pharmacopoeia and then the second thing that they said was um, it's also you know this is a religious experience this is not as the missionaries are saying, just a kind of um, drunken orgy of sort of stupefaction and intoxication. You know, this is a genuine religious experience. It's a, uh, you know, Native American analog to the Christian church. And reading all these accounts, I was very struck by how similar this is to the conversation we have today around psychedelics in the sort of public mainstream. Um, so, is it that psychedelics are intrinsically? A medicine and you know a, a spiritual experience um or is it as i think more likely that actually if you're trying to sell psychedelics to an uh, uninitiated you know and possibly hostile white majority um then those are the two ways you go in first of all you talk about its medical utility and second you talk about its spiritual value because those are two um uh you know two things that are validated by the dominant culture and uh, i think we're seeing that again and i've been very struck in the last year or two in america much more than in britain uh about how the psychedelic conversation has kind of been shifting away from medicine towards religion uh you know that uh, it's clear that the process of having psychedelics validated as medicines is going to be very lengthy and um, you know very expensive, and it's you know people are not going to wait with bated bated breath forever to see with this substance after that substance jump through this or the next FDA trial hoop. You know, so then when you see someone like uh, Rick Doblin at the Maps conference this year presenting the future of psychedelics, you know, to a huge crowd of ten thousand people um and he's wearing his white suit and it's the hot gospel of psychedelics you know and what we're looking forward to in the psychedelic future is um you know net zero trauma for humanity you know you can sort of see that this is escaping its kind of strictly sort of medical confines and that maybe you know it's going to find you know a natural form not the only natural not its only natural form but one of its natural forms in a religious context Uh, and that's very noticeable from here in britain where we're much more um kind of restrained and post-christian and secular you know and uh, uh our trials um of psychedelics over here at imperial college and so on are much less about the mystical experience and uh you know much more about the default brain network um so yeah i think there's uh, I, I i think there's um you know the medical understanding and the spiritual understanding are both kind of modes of Western understanding. And I think, you know, they're going to be in tension, as you would say, or maybe in dialogue um, in, in the future in all kinds of ways.
0: Yeah, in some ways that uh, what I hear you saying is that the medical approach will at moments sort of dip into a religious tone and perhaps also religious and spiritual approaches will dip into medical or healing, healing language. Um, and then in a lot of ways, the future might look a lot like like the history with cases like uh, like James mm-hmm. Moody from the Smithsonian.
2: Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's right. And I think, you know, more broadly as a culture, whether secular or religious, we look to science and to medicine to validate our sense of, uh, you know, contested substances like this. The, what The question we want to know is what does science say? You know and the story is oh science used to say that uh this stuff drove you crazy and made you jump out of windows but science now says that this is going to be incredibly useful for all kinds of mental health conditions you know so uh, uh science and medical science acts as a referee here uh very broadly in ways that i think can be useful for religion as well
1: yeah certainly and i think also it's po- your your comments are pointed to the fact that psychedelic psychedelics and the term psychedelic has been a political has been in a political context from the very start and has been in some ways sort of a political project whether that project is medicalizing these substances and and moving towards legalization through a medical route or moving towards legalization through a spiritual route and then another space that i think is is even less studied but i know is a space that you have thought about and um and we're even gesturing towards with, with your comment about Ibiza, which is the, the recreational space. Um, and in my my sort of research is, is focused specifically on the, the recreational space and, and the way that people use psychedelics at Burning Man and in other recreational settings. But what I see from the sort of general psychedelic discourse is that. The recreational is used as sort of the foil upon which the medical and the spiritual can be justified. Oh, we are not doing drugs like people in Ibiza. We are not taking MDMA and going to a rave. Mm-hmm. We're doing it in either a medical context or a spiritual context, and therefore it is OK. Um, I'm curious, as as somebody who whose history is really covered, what I would say is all three of these domains, the recreational, the spiritual, and the medical, are you seeing how are you seeing sort of the recreational entering into this conversation and being being a part of the history of psychedelics, the history of mescaline and and maybe of drugs more generally? Yeah, all these terms are difficult. They make a
2: lot of assumptions. I think the term recreational makes a lot of assumptions. Uh, I think the fundamental distinction here is medical and non-medical and um, then uh, the way that that was framed through the 20th century was um, non-medical was drug abuse and then people decided that this was a little moral a little judgmental and the term recreational appeared because uh people thought well that's kind of softer and less judgmental and then people who took their drug taking a bit more seriously than that went hey this isn't recreational this is entheogenic you know so you see kind of all these um uh you know categories emerging from there and i think this is um you know just to to run through the the etymology history which i think is very important um the word drug doesn't really emerge in the context that we're talking about it until the 20th century you know before that point the word drug just means any kind of medication you know we still have that in words like drugstore for example and um When it took on this particular meaning of drug um, in the early 20th century, that was, well, it kind of meant mind-altering or psychoactive drug, but it obviously not all psychoactive drugs. We didn't start talking about a cup of tea or a bottle of beer as a drug unless we were trying to make a deliberate point. Um, So uh, drug means mind-altering, but it also means that if you look at the sort of first examples of it, it's a kind of shortening of something like dangerous drug or addictive drug or generally a drug that should be used only in a medical context. And in a non-medical context, it's a drug. And we still have that odd say I mean, something like, say, morphine or nitrous oxide. It's not a drug if it's being used in surgery. It's only a drug if it's being used, as we would say, recreationally. Uh, and then on top of that, I think the drug the word drug also as always sort of baked into it early on, was the idea that it was something foreign. We tend not to call things in our own culture drugs. We don't call alcohol and tobacco drugs. A drug tends to be something that's come from somewhere else. And you find that in non-Western contexts as well. Uh, Traditional uses of ayahuasca or coca, you know, are appalled at the idea that they might be drugs, but they have the word drug in the vocabulary. Like, oh, drugs, those are those bad things that people in the cities take, you know. So there's always something about culturally alien about drugs. And then, of course, from, you know, the early years of the 20th century and drug... uh, uh, prohibition and criminalization drug also has this sense of illegal or immoral uh, illicit baked into it so uh there's a kind of medical and a cultural and a legal, you know a whole set of you know negative pejorative associations around the word drug and um you can see how this started to become a problem in the 1950s when people were starting to take LSD or mescaline and have, you know, mystical experiences or experiences that they found very valuable and also starting to find that this experience might have therapeutic benefits and so on. And you can't really use the word drug to say that. You can't say kind of, you know, drugs is a is a kind of word that you can only use uh, to describe bad things. So... Uh, And you see Aldous Huxley in his writings around that time dancing around the word drug until the um, word psychedelic is coined. And, um, you know, that was specifically as an alternative to the psychiatric terms for LSD and mescaline, which were psychotomimetic or um, hallucinogen or things that connected it to psychosis and schizophrenia. And so it was specifically about connecting the experience you know, to uh, to mystical or religious experience. And uh, Robert Graves is very interesting. If you look at his very first experience with mushrooms, um, he says, you can't call this a drug. This is the opposite of a drug. Drug means something that stupefies you and dumbs you down, you know. And this is, you know, obviously for Graves, you know, the model was the sort of uh, initiation into ancient mystery religions. So a new word had to be... Um, found. And um, psychedelic from the very beginning had these very positive associations that were in a way the mirror image of the word drug, the word drug forged in the progressive era or the era of temperance and prohibition in the early 20th century. 50 years later, um, the word psychedelic emerging in the context of um, sort of positive psychology and um, the valorization of uh, inner experience and mystical experience. So, yeah, I think that's what um, the term psychedelic brings with it is something that's very specific of that moment, but it's also um, a way of presenting what were formerly known as drugs in a completely different light so that they step out of, uh, you know, that they lose that stigma that they would otherwise have attached to them.
1: Yeah, it's certainly telling that it's the war on drugs and not the war on you know substances or or even mind altering. We we alter our minds in all sorts of ways, and mm-hmm. yet the word drug, as as you so beautifully trace, it means something specific. Um, I w- I want to note to the audience that we have a, we have a number of really great um, questions here, which we will turn to sort of in the last um, bit of our of our time um, after Paul and I ask a couple more, just sort of. Uh, general questions about about these two works. But if anybody in the audience has additional questions, please send them through and we'll try to get through as many as possible. Um, I wanted maybe to on this point about the the history of drug and thinking about um, what it what it comes to signify, you end Psychonauts with a really beautiful discussion about psychedelic exceptionalism and the way in which this term, the term psychedelic has been has been used at times to combat to set it apart from drugs sort of more generally. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about psychedelic exceptionalism and how that then sort of came to inform inform the work of psychonauts in particular.
2: Yeah I mean it's a term I don't know if it originated with Carl Hart I certainly associate with, with him and he writes very eloquently about it. I think it's very very obvious from his perspective um uh not just as a black neuroscientist, but as somebody who's uh, studied all kinds of drugs and has seen all kinds of, um, you know, uh, beneficial and negative consequences arising from all of them, that this attempt to um, sort of uh, uh, separate the psychedelic discourse from the wider discourse of the war on drugs is kind of, you see quite often the assumption that um, the psychedelic Uh, Renaissance or the um, medicalization of psychedelics is sort of uh, at the beginning of the death knell of the war on drugs. And this is the kind of the the, the crack in the armor. And, you know, there is a case as um, Carl Hart points out that it's the opposite, that actually what's happened is that, um, you know, the educated or sort of predominantly middle class white elite's drug of choice is now kind of operating legally or semi-legally and, you know, meantime in terms of drug courts and people losing custody of their children and you know that kind of level of the war on drugs is still kind of grinding on much as the way it did through the through the 20th century and i think that's the case uh i don't think um that analysis tells us much about psychedelics uh per se you know because it uh, it's also true that psychedelics do um you know objectively have very different properties from other drugs you know and uh that doesn't tell us about that but i think the same the same logic kind of works within the field of psychedelics in the way that you've identified. Um, that uh because psychedelics are drugs and drugs are illegal, it's important to um escape from this sort of uh, prohibitionist discourse. And one way of doing that is through medicine, and another way of doing that is through religion. Uh, and in both cases, it's kind of necessary to haul the ladder up after you've done that. So I think predominantly from uh uh you know, the sort of medical and, if we can call them, corporadelic forces, you know, we hear this thing that psychedelics should only be used under medical supervision. Otherwise, it's very dangerous and very risky to use it on your own. And that's kind of consigning psychedelics without their exclusion, you know, to sort of, um, you know, a continued existence in the war on drugs. And, um, you know, I personally would advocate for legal regulation that uh, reaches uh, beyond just um, simply medical uses with licensed pharmaceuticals and looks at we're starting to see that with the decriminalization uh, sort of more of a bottom-up model um i think there are all kinds of other models uh, starting to emerge in different places around the world of membership clubs as well as starting to look what's happened with the retail sale of cannabis and so on i think we're starting to see how um uh psychedelics could be legally regulated in non medical contexts but we are currently in a situation where 99% of that uh, you know conversation about uh, regulation is happening with regards to you know uh, licensed medical use which is kind of 1% of all use and at some point i think we're going to have to turn our minds to the other 99% of psychedelic use
0: <laughs> yeah speaking of that that 99 99- percent of of uh of other use. Um there is a, a point at the beginning of psychonauts that I might just just quote here uh, where you it's it's very close to the beginning and uh, along the along the lines of the the sort of focal point is this 19th century history of medicine um that you were sort of wrestling with like There are other voices. There are the the 99% of of other folks besides this medical establishment that's using Mm -hmm. drugs. And yet, as you say, the early psychonauts remain of their time in some obvious respects. They're almost all educated white males, a reflection of that group's domination of 19th century science, for which reason I have made the most of female working class, non-white and non-Western voices where I have found them. In other respects, however, their diversity is striking and their endeavors amount to remarkable and remarkably understudied episode in Western medical History. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you could share about how you were grappling with uh, representation and the uh, the approach that you took in, in the end as far as 19th century history of medicine and history of psychopharmacology mm-hmm. being like a, a charged, like a cathected point in the history of drugs um, while also trying to sort of wrestle with as you say, that the 99 percent of other other use that falls Mm -hmm. outside of this sort of particularly um, pivotal point in history.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no way getting around the fact that 19th century science and 19th century medicine were both effectively, you know, entirely white male enterprises, you know, and you can't um, rewrite that. what you can do is flag it up very early on, as I did. You know, this is um, something, um, uh, you know, that we can't, you know, there's no point in, from our contemporary standpoint, criticising the 19th century for this. But on the other hand, you know, you do want to share with the reader that, yeah, this is um, this is a limitation that we're very aware of. And um, as you say, I, my solution really was to, make the most of other voices where i could find them so um i spent quite a lot of time in the book with pascal beverly randolph who is a black or mixed race self-identified um spiritual figure in the early 19th century who's um used hashish for um uh, clairvoyance and astral traveling and marketed it as such as well who's very unusual figure um then um in terms of uh, female voices that females uh female participation in this is one thing um female writing for the record about personal experience is something completely different that's a very very high hurdle to jump not many women did i've spent a bit of time with someone like Maud gone who was a political activist and spiritualist and extraordinarily fearless woman um love object of wb yeats for a long time and she wrote about drug use in her memoirs but uh, you know the problem you have with these figures is that yes um they do escape. Uh, you know, they show you other genders and ethnicities, but you're also dealing with very, very exceptional figures. So it's very hard to generalize out further into that gender or that ethnicity from them. Uh, the great source I've been available, who, who I've been sort of familiar with for a long time and uh, engaged with previously. Uh, is a character called James Lee, who is a British um, uh northern working class mining engineer who found um, life in 1890s uh, Britain very dull and conformist and went off to work in the colonies and became particularly fascinated um, by kind of uh, the sort of um, underworlds that he encountered mostly in south and southeast Asia and particularly with drug use and became uh, sort of dedicated himself to investigating drugs you know ranging from the sort of the western ones like morphine and Cocaine, uh, through to uh, opium and um, cannabis, hashish and uh, other sort of local drugs that still haven't been identified. And he's a fascinating and tantalising figure because um, he's working class. He's a non-scient, he's a non-scientist, but he's very smart. He's an engineer. Um, you know, he he writes very very directly. The interesting thing about him is you can't tell how many James Lees there were, but the fact that there is one, he's that kind of black swan that sort of makes it very clear that uh, self-experimentation and self-experimentation, not just as casual, as we might say, recreational drug use, but as people, you know, systematically um, trying different drugs on themselves and recording the results, um, was not an exclusively um, white sort of uh, elitist practice.
0: Yeah, if I could quote uh, a, a bit of James Lee that you share um, in the the chapter "Prosthetic Gods." Uh, Lee's history as I, as I was reading it, reminded me so much of uh, one of Cambridge's locals here, uh, Lisa Bieberman, um, who took a very sort of hands-on how-to approach to to drug knowledge. You know this wasn't just something to to keep in the lab for the you know people with letters after their name to experiment upon themselves, but it was something that all of us could sort of uh, take into our own hands, as it were. And Lee, Lee writes, I quote here, uh, "The life of a drug taker can be a happy one." far surpassing any other, or it can be one of suffering and misery. It depends on the user's knowledge. The most interesting period will only be reached after many years, and then only if perfect health has been retained. He is, as you put, a a rational and practical approach um, that you often don't find in uh, some of the more flowery language of the reports of Um, self-experimentation. If I could turn to one of our our questions in the audience that I think sort of gets to this point of the the role of self-experimentation in, in clinical research and medical research. Uh, it's played such a big part of your book. It's sort of this guiding thread of like the the the, the first mover role of self-experimentation and sort of setting out on these new these new paths of of research. Uh, I think exemplified better than anybody else in in Sasha Shulgin, for sure. Um, but our our audience member here is wondering why self-experimentation has sort of been backgrounded so much in contemporary research. I'm I'm curious what you you make of this uh leaving behind of this this legacy of self-experimentation that you note so well in in psychonauts.
2: Yeah, I think um it fell out of favor very fast in the Early 20th century, for various reasons, partly because of uh, drugs becoming seen as a social problem and stigmatized, but also because of a change in the focus of psychology—less um, interest in introspection, uh, more behaviorism—you uh, know—and then once you had, you know, things like EEGs, which were kind of proxies for brain activity the idea of getting people to take drugs and pontificate about their experience just seemed less scientific than kind of, you know, doing EEG work and so on. Uh, The uh, scientific uh, self-experimentation didn't entirely disappear. Um, The areas where it really hung on were in psychopharmacology, where people were studying and formulating new drugs, and there people carried on, you know, experimenting on themselves. So that's why... Albert Hoffman, for example, in 1943. It was not that strange for him to be self-experimenting with his new compound LSD 25. And then when the um psychedelic era started in the 1950s, and you were dealing with drugs with these remarkable effects on consciousness that had to be experienced, you had, you know, a a, a great um renaissance i mean we talk about the psychedelic renaissance now i'm sort of attempting to suggest that the 1950s is really was in itself a psychedelic renaissance of you know a previous era the 19 uh the 19th century uh then you started to get a great um a a great flurry of it and i think it really disappeared um in the 1960s in the conventional narrative it's all about um well, Harvard and Tim Leary and, uh, you know, all that sort of uh, um, the psychedelic counterculture frightening the horses. But I think um, another equally significant was the um, amendments to FDA protocols, the Kafava harris amendments of uh, 1962, which set up... Um, Everything that we're familiar with now with sort of uh, you know, double blind trials against uh, placebos and uh, the idea of a quality drug being something that had the same effect across a large uh, cohort of people. And, um, you know, that really kind of once that was in play, if you were trying to license and make money out of your drug, then that was really the end of self-experiment because, um, uh, you know, what established whether a drug, you know, uh, jumped through all the obstacle courses of FDA licensing was whether it had produced uh, similar effects in um, uh, large cohorts of patients and whether you could show a biomedical cause and effect between the chemistry of the pill and the effect. And, you know, all those things kind of made um, self-experiment a bit marginal. And so it more or less disappeared and I think it's we're now in this curious position in the psychedelic renaissance or maybe the second psychedelic renaissance if you sort of take my kind of deep historical line on it, is that where studying these uh, what's really interesting to us is the phenomenology of um these uh, th- these drugs the subjective effects that they produce and yet we're stuck with a model of science which can only study this at one remove from uh, you know by looking at brain scans or whatever so what's the position of self-experiment uh in this in in, in this discourse and i think there are you know there are probably are good reasons why if you're doing Trials of psychedelics for medicines that you want to be licensed. That those trials don't involve self-experiment. There is a study which I refer to in my book, which shows that people are less likely to believe a scientific study if they know that the people who did the study were experimenting on themselves. But I think we have this curious hybrid. I think self-experimentation has always been a hybrid form. You know, with one foot in literature and one foot in science, and that's what's so fascinating about it. And um, you know, it's. it's so interesting for tracking bigger changes like you know the sort of balance between objectivity and introspection in the in the mind sciences. And I think where it finds its home now is um I mean I think this is one of the reasons why I've- Michael Pollan's first book was such a huge, towering bestseller, was that uh, uh, he told us what the scientists were saying. You know, he told us about 5-HT receptors and default brain networks and all this kind of stuff. But he also told us the things the scientists couldn't tell us, which is what these experiences were like and what they felt like, which he described beautifully. And I think, you know, there are a huge uh, mainstream audience of people who were really here for that bit and they weren't getting it from the science. And uh, so I think we do get it now, but it kind of doesn't quite exist within the science itself so it's a
1: kind of outrider to the science I, lo- there's, I love how the, the you know you're almost again sort of pointing to like what are the what are the languages that these different spaces are using to sort of give legitimacy and to sort of make sense of the world and and Sasha Sol- Shulgin is such a great example of somebody who was able to was clearly speaking the language of medicine but yet was doing so with like sort of Poetic license and self exploration and introspection, and you know, is an example of blending that. Another example of blending that comes to mind is something like the mystical experience questionnaire, which mm-hmm. you know, we're trying to science is trying to say, okay, this is what it means to have a spiritual experience. Um, and, yeah. and we can prove it with this psychometric uh set of like 50 questions, you know, um, turning to this, like uh, religion and, and science feel like maybe they're particularly um, not at odds necessarily, but they're different, they're different ways of making sense of the world and of explaining mm-hmm. and um, pointing to one of the questions from the audience. Um, the, the Stephanie's question is, is there a way that you see that sort of these, these two approaches, science and religion, science and spirituality can be reconciled um, in the study of psychedelics, that there can be a as she says, a uh, not a perpetuating of the categorical demarcation between science and religion or psychedelic and drug, but rather bringing both the empirical and the qualitative experiential together. Do you see a path forward for that?
2: Yes, and i i I think I think they'll continue to be, you know, we might say see it as being in tension or we might see it as being in dialogue. But I think those two languages, I think Sasha Shulgin is a great example just to uh, return to him, because that's exactly when the FDA are setting out these new protocols. Uh, Shulgin didn't have to obey them because he wasn't trying to make money out of this. He wasn't trying to patent or license his drugs, so he didn't have to um, jump through the FDA hoops. And... um, it's fascinating to me in uh, T. Carl and P. Carl's to see how he proceeded. And he was very explicit about this, that, you know, drug discovery, there are two parts of it. One part is the synthesis of the chemical, but then you've just got a white powder and you really have no idea. There's no way of just like looking at the molecular structure and saying, this is going to be psychoactive, let alone what it's going to do. So he also wrote his subjective extensions and commentary. And I Connect that back to, you know, what I'd see is the very, very beginning of this story, which is Humphrey Davy and his nitrous oxide experiments. And his first write up of that in 1800 is exactly the same. The first section of his book is the chemistry and the synthesis. And then he goes on to look at the animal experiments and what we can tell about how much of the gas is absorbed into the bloodstream. And, you know, then he goes on and finishes with the subjective accounts of people, you know, including Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Robert Southey and the, the other romantic poets, you know. So, you know, we have these two languages which are mutually unintelligible. They don't inform one another at all. But you have to put the two of them together uh, in order to have the whole picture. And I think something analogous is probably true of um, religion and science. They're not looking for meaning in the same places. They're not following the same protocols. They're not trying to achieve the end, the same results, um, but they both um, hit their limits in different ways and in ways in which the uh, other one can then be adduced to kind of fill in a bigger picture. So I don't see a grand synthesis um, of uh, religion and science emerging from this, but I do see psychedelics maybe bringing them together in ways that they haven't been brought together before. And I do see that as being sort of credentially, uh, you know, very productive.
0: I think uh one of our audience members is is getting at uh what you mentioned about with uh Michael Pollan's bestselling book and why it was such a such a popular uh a popular volume because he brought up in so much of his personal experience into the text it's like a third a third of the book and one of our our audience members asked very plainly what is Mike's experience of using psychedelics personally which I think you know I I, I don't want to put that to you directly but I am curious if you might speak to personal investment you may have in the material that you research
2: yeah I think that's uh, that's absolutely fair and it may it it may be revealing i mean it's i think it's no surprise to say that I've been taking psychedelics um you know occasionally uh for a very long time uh i't i would have been ended up reading about them now if I hadn't had you know very formative psychedelic experiences in my youth in my late teens my early twenties I kind of came to um uh, my coming of age uh, in terms of psychedelics was in a sort of odd period that's um, thought of as a, a kind of interregnum. I mean, I was uh, by the time I was uh, interested in them and sort of you know late 70s and early 80s, you know, the hippie thing was done and gone. You know, I was of that punk generation that never trust a hippie was my uh, motto, you know, and uh, it was, uh, you know, an, an and, and the idea that you didn't really look to, um, authority, you know, it was a sort of DIY culture. You did things yourself and worked them out for yourself. So I did that, you know, at that time with LSD and mushrooms, um, you know, in a very haphazard way, incredibly poorly informed, you know, this is why it was so exciting for me when things like Arrowhead came along and there was actually good drug information out there, you know, cause, uh, I was, um, uh, working pretty much in, in, in a vacuum. And, um, you know, I, so I, I came to my own understanding of psychedelics and my use of them. And I would say that, um, you know, probably the ones that really informed my experience and kind of shook my view of reality were the first few experiences. And um, Alan Watts famously says, you know, when you've got the message, hang out the phone. And my response to that was always, yeah, but what if you're enjoying the conversation? So, uh, you know, I've continued to take them since. But for me, they're kind of really more like um, the sort of quintessence of all the things I like. I take them, you know, in nature with people I love and they're just great peak experiences. And uh, that's kind of where I am with psychedelics personally. So it may be that, uh, you know, I'm personally not very interested in the sort of the guided trip that feels a bit odd to me and i think that's because probably i'm used to figuring this stuff out for myself and the whatever understanding i've reached i've reached on my own so yeah that's i guess my personal background and that may or may not uh, inform the work that i've done
0: i often wonder what uh, james and freud would would think of a site like Airwood today i think in a lot of ways would be sort of their the the dream of a culmination of all their their work, mm. as far as what self experimentation was to them, um, I could ask a follow up question. This is something that I I turn over in my mind a great deal. You you see uh, in the sixties a kind of split between the um, the psychedelic movement of the sixties and the sort of political militancy movement of the sixties. Often, sort of mo- moments of of conjoining. Um, and then I think it was in the '80s. You know, the history of Greenpeace very tied up with you know people being turned on by LSD or mushrooms or something along those lines, and then starting Greenpeace as a as a result of that. Um, but I'm curious when you think when you you're talking you're describing you know uh, never trust a hippie in the the '70s and '80s. What was it that you sort of saw? Was were there any sort of moments of synthesis between a sort of? Um, interest in psychedelics as as alongside a sort of punk political militancy um or did the two did the two sort of still seem kind of separate to you as as i see uh sort of ran the the tides in the 60s the
2: the the two definitely uh were meshed and um you know in things like the squatting movement for example uh, you know there was a whole kind of um Large scene of people who were um, living kind of more or less alternative lives on next to no money, uh, and of whom it would have been hard to say whether they were uh, whether they were punks or hippies. I think by that time, when I say hippie, I mean people who, at that point in the late nineteen seventies, were still kind of unreconstructed believers in the sort of sixties uh, um, um, hippie dream and. The ones of those who were left, you know, they were a noticeable scene and certainly in Britain, they had their bands like Hawkwind and Gong, you know, you could still go along to places where, uh, um, you know, the kind of smell of patchouli oil and cannabis hit you before you wandered in through the door, you know, they still existed, but I think we, uh, you know, uh, nobody in that kind of alternative scene was expecting the hippie dream to happen. I think thinking back to it, I found, um, that was one of the things I found, um, uh, you know, so appealing as a sort of, as an inspirational text about um, Hunter S Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, because it was a kind of deep phenomenal engagement with the drug experience, but it was like, uh, no, that happy dream is gone, you know, we're now in a different age. And, uh, you know, that uh, that very, very much spoke to me at that time. But I think, um, you know, a lot of people, I mean, it, I think it's a little hard to talk about because a lot of people took psychedelics a few times and were extremely influenced by them and then stopped taking them and moved on. So what do you call those people? So in America, I guess the commune movement. Um, which you think of as a hippie movement that was probably largely composed of people who had had their psychedelic moment in the late sixties, and then you know, as the seventies rolled round, kind of uh, you know had families and wanted to set up an alternative lifestyle. And would you call that a political movement or a, a hippie movement or you know, or a post psychedelic movement? So yeah, lots and lots of crossover, of course. Um, and I guess uh, I guess my main encounter um, just to finish on that with uh, you know, if you wanted to by LSD in Britain in the late 70s. And uh, that was when you had to spend time with kind of unreconstructed 1960s hippies.
1: Yeah, well, perfect. And to just pass on a comment from what, from the person who asked that question, thank you for your candor, and I I would echo that it, it's um as you you mentioned, there's there are pros and cons to um, being open about or experimenting with these substances, and as a researcher or as somebody who studies them, and yet I feel the the shadow of prohibition it really is what is shaping these conversations. We would we would as researchers, we would be having very different conversations about substance use if there wasn't this shadow of the war on drugs Mm -hmm. and um, prohibition. So thank you for for sharing that. And um, I wanted to make sure we got a chance to ask Stephen's question, um, which is changing gears slightly, but is thinking about um, maybe not changing gears that that much. Thinking about a, f- a sort of a fourth category of um, psychedelic use beyond the sort of three pillars of recreational, medical and spiritual, and the fourth being sort of aesthetic um or or maybe creative. Um mm-hmm. I'm, Stephen is curious how your research has thought about that. and and maybe especially in light of um the the Western influence you were talking about or the Western focus on visuals what, what do those visuals mean? How should, how could we think about them as a, maybe a creative or aesthetic experience that has value in its own right?
2: Yeah, I found, um, that's, that's absolutely right. The aesthetic approach has kind of disappeared. I found it incredibly generative and productive and, um, interesting, uh, to study. And you get it, um, right at the beginning with that sort of, uh, humphrey davy and the nitrous oxide experience and the romantic poets um that uh you know although you know we're looking at the intersection of drugs and spirituality a lot of the history of drugs is actually a movement away from spirituality it's creating experiences which previously would have been described as spiritual but now have other possible material explanations um but one of the ones that came up in the um the nitrous oxide experiments, this is around 1800, um, was the category of the sublime to describe the psychedelic experience, which, um, which, which I like a lot, actually, because it seems to me to introduce a very creative ambiguity. It's not a materialist explanation. The sublime is something that is outside of reason, beyond reason, and not constrained by reason. But also, at the same time, it's not um positing uh, a spiritual or divine um cause or meaning it's kind of sitting in that ambivalent territory where the effect is the product of the both the observer and what they're observing you know so uh and it's associated with awe and uh, and can be associated with terror uh you know it's as uh, as um Edmund Burke said, it's that state of the soul in which all its emotions are suspended, which I've always really liked as a description of the psychedelic experience. And you find this throughout the 19th century. A lot of people um, are um, uh, who come to psychedelics, their frames of reference are aesthetic or uh, poetic in ways that we've forgotten about. It's really interesting how many people sees straight on the sort of poetry of Wordsworth in particular. And, um, uh, you know, uh, Havelock Ellis says, you know, if uh, if this stuff catches on, you know, Wordsworth is going to be the, the poet who everybody's going to read. And then it's fascinating to read Alexander Shulgin's first experience, where he doesn't reference um, uh, Wordsworth sort of specifically, but he says, you know, as I had my first dose of mescaline, I felt it coming up. My first thought was... I, th- I know this state. I've been here before. This is how I used to see the world when I was a child, when everything was fresh and when I was part of it all. And there was no alienation or separation between me and the world. And, you know, that's exactly what everybody meant when they talked about Wordsworth. Um, so I think there's been a long and productive um, engagement with the uh aesthetic approach and um i don't think it's necessarily tied to any particular sort of visual form or visual representation i mean i'm interested in way that you know the image that uh you know comes to mind when people say psychedelic or if you kind of um searched psychedelic images on google what you would get is something that's very different from anything that that, well, certainly, that I personally experience on psychedelics, it comes from somewhere else, and it has all kinds of other meanings to it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, in the same way that um, a psychedelic, you know, we have the, you know, as uh, as uh, as Westerners, we these don't come with a frame that's ready made, you know, we have to find our own frame and we can say, um, you know, this is a medicine, I'm going to take this and heal myself, or we can say this is a sacrament, I'm going to take it and have a, a spiritual experience, but we could also say, I'm going to take this and I'm going to create art and there's quite a lot of that through the early half of the 20th century with mescaline and uh, it's interesting to me that that's um disappeared as a pillar and I'm really glad to hear it uh, referenced and brought back into the conversation.
1: Yeah, certainly, and um, for anyone in the audience who's interested, the um, CSWR does a pop apocalypse, pop apocalypse uh, podcast, which is talking about some of the, as you're noting, some of the much smaller threads of visionary art around altered states, um, which are still exist, but but as you note, are, are, have a different, seem, seemingly different flavor perhaps than um, they did in the past. And as you were speaking about Wordsworth and these other... Um, towering sort of figures, it almost struck me as what you were pointing to was less aesthetic and was almost sort of mystical or what what a lot of people would hmm. sort of refer to or point to as mystical. And this gets to another question and actually sort of a concatenation of a few questions in the audience around um, what do, what do you make and what does your research sort of make of this idea of the psychedelic induced mystical experience? And do you see sort of from this this discussion and discourse around mystical experience do you see a way that um psychedelics could be communicated to religious practitioners effectively the the person asking the question was specifically asking about say buddhism that has restrictions on intoxicants like do you see a way that um the psychedelic experience could be made legible to to different religious traditions yeah i mean i was you know this
2: this engagement happens already. I'm sure we're all familiar with, like, the Zigzag Zen collection of sort of uh, writings about psychedelics and Buddhism. Even though Buddhism has these kind of, yeah, I mean, even smoking tobacco is kind of problematic within Buddhism for all kinds of reasons. Uh, I, I, I think that's, I think that's true. I think what's interesting in the history, as I said briefly before, was that it opens up the mystical experience to more interpretations uh it's um if you look at say william james's melia and the society for psychical research who uh in the late 19th century were interested in what to do about these experiences um Hashish, but particularly with chloroform and ether and nitrous oxides, these brief sort of anaesthetic revelations, as uh, Benjamin Blood called them, the person who communicated them to uh, uh, to William James, and of course, what was interesting about them was that the, you know they could be experimented on systematically. So you get these figures within the Society of Psychical Research trying to understand out-of-body experience or psychical phenomena and using drugs for this purpose. And they come to such a range of different um, conclusions. Um, You have figures like William Ramsey, great gas chemist and Nobel Prize winner who uh, inhaled... um, ether and nitrous oxide and chloroform dozens of times and was absolutely fascinated each time absolutely convinced that this was actually reality and what he'd lived his life in was you know sort of uh, the veil of Maya that had now been sort of torn aside and then coming back uh, from that state uh, to his sort of uh, everyday reality and trying to work out what this meant and you know reading transcendental philosophy and reading everything he could and at the end kind of being unsure and thinking, well, these are extraordinary experiences, but could this just be what happens when, you know, the brain gets disconnected from the body? You know, could it just be a materialist phenomenon? And then at the same time, right alongside him in the Society of Psychical Research, a figure like uh, um, you know William Wilde, who's a um, uh, doctor, but also a spiritualist and a mesmerist and a theosophist, uh, who you know, for whom this kind of uh, experience on chloroform or ether was a genuine spiritual experience. It was, you know, the fading away of the material and the rising up of the spiritual. And this was the journey of the soul, you know, to the astral plane. And, you know, he was... um, absolutely convinced of a spiritual explanation, you know, and also believed that, uh, you know, any serious rationalist or materialist should just have this experience and then they would understand it themselves. So you get the more spiritually inclined figures uh, just kind of arguing for rational and material demonstrations of this. So um, I think what happens what, what drugs have brought to this is um, a diversity of possible understandings of these states of which the spiritual is one, but then there are also others.
0: Brilliant, yeah. Um, a sort of set of profane illuminations to uh, mm-hmm. to borrow Benjamin's phrase on this. Um, I think this is a great question to uh, to bring us to a close here from Mark. Uh, Mark is curious what uh, topics might be in mind for future books. Um, and if a future book is not in the works, um, as this one just came out this year, I'm sure, uh, the year has uh, sort of been taken over by by psychonauts, uh, I, I am sure, um, where people might be able to find you and, and your work, uh, if, if we might expect something in the future. Um, and a third question of my own curiosity, in this like trajectory of uh, the history of medicine, from the perspective of drugs, um, from high society to mescaline to uh, uh, the nitrous oxide book to psychonauts, what what profane illumination might you suggest that we all pull away with from this uh, trajectory in your work?
2: That's a great um, set of questions. I um, I always think it's hard to come up with a takeaway from the psychedelic experience, and that the psychedelic experience also doesn't necessarily need to be validated by a takeaway. Uh, One book that's come out recently, I don't know if it's on your radar, is Ten Trips by Andy Mitchell, a British colleague of mine, uh, who has thought about this very well, and I'd uh, recommend that for your reading list. As far as my sort of future output is concerned, I think I'm going to move towards a parallel kind of cultural history, which doesn't involve drugs, but has a lot of the same themes, um, I think is where I will go next. I won't say much more about that. But um, the other thing i am engaged on at the moment, actually, is a a new edition of um, High Society. And what's fascinating about that is that, You know, that was maybe 12 years ago, I guess I wrote it and going back over the text and seeing what revision should have to happen. Well, you know, there's no psychedelic renaissance in that book. It was, you know, even, you know, I mean, it feels to me like it was, you know, very recently. But even if it was like 12, 13 years ago, um, there's none of that. There was no such thing as legal cannabis. I'm writing about that as, uh, you know, something that might happen in the future only 12 years ago. Uh, the term opioid crisis had not yet been coined, you know, so that's has been a real um, uh, eye opener for me in terms of how fast the landscape has changed in the last 10, 15 years. And um, uh, it's made me excited for how much it's going to change over the next 10 or 15
1: Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for for all of this. Um, I am excited to see where your non-drug future takes us. And and Mm -hmm. also just grateful for the work that you've done to reframe these conversations and and make that progress that you're noting happen. So thank you for taking the time to join us and for all of your work. Um, Thank you also to the audience for joining us today and for your wonderful questions. We will pass all of those on to, to Mike. Um, I also want to take a moment to briefly thank um, Dr. Professor, uh, Professor Charles Stang, who is the director of the CSWR and um, helped make all of today possible. And I also want to thank Lori for her technical expertise helping manage everything behind the scenes, and also to all of the CSWR staff for their help today. Um, and of course, thank you to Paul for, for everything um, today and beyond. We will um, have one more Psychedelics and the Future of Religion event coming up before the winter holiday. This will be a conversation with Erica Dick and Christian Elcock about their brand new book, um, which is titled Expanding Mindscapes, a Global History of Psychedelics. I believe it came out a a day or two ago. Um, And it fittingly um, ends with an essay by our very own Mike J. So um, it will be a a beautiful sort of extension of the conversation here and a chance to really dig into the, the long history of psychedelics. Um that conversation will be on Thursday, December 7th, um from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern. That will also be on Zoom and a link will be available in the chat and also on the CSWR website. We look forward to seeing all of you back here then and wish you well until then. Thank you so much.
0: Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions.
1: Copyright 2023, President and Fellows
0: of Harvard College.